the last couple of weeks just watching the daily press conferences and the news briefing and seeing the executive orders and like thinking about how many thousands of people worked to make all of this happen. And for me, just playing a very, 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 very small part of it. I'm not sure it like hit me until after inauguration happened and like seeing all the effects of of what it now means to have him as president and government taking the form that it is right now. So thankful for all the work that so many people did to make that happen. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Like the last episode, this interview is with a technologist from the Biden presidential campaign. Today's guest is Shreyas Seishasai, who is Director of Analytics Engineering. Shreyas was a software engineer for Google and Quora, who became Pete Buttigieg's Director of Engineering, and then joined the Biden campaign after the primary. Shreyas and I discussed both the primary and general election, and how the back end of the analytics operation came together at Biden, as well as politics and technology more broadly. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Shreyas with Biden for President. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Shreyas, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Shreyas Seishasai. I was the analytics engineering director on the Biden campaign and the national coordinated campaign this cycle. I'm relatively new to politics, I guess, compared to certainly you and a lot of other folks who've worked in the field a while. I just started in politics a couple of years ago. I worked on the primary campaign for Pete Buttigieg, so I was the director of engineering there. Before that, kind of grew up in private tech, and so studied computer science in college and then went to Google as a software engineer for my first job and then joined a startup a couple years after that called Quora, the Q&A platform. So I uh, spent a lot of time there doing engineering and data science and product management. And yeah, back in 2018, left that. And in the process of trying to figure out what to do, got excited about politics and and yeah, found the Peak campaign and that brought me to Biden and then here. Yeah, it sounds very straightforward the way you put it, but it isn't that straightforward, for example, to land at MIT in computer science because that's fairly competitive. Where'd you grow up and how did you get yourself on that path to begin with? Yeah, so I grew up in Pennsylvania and Bucks County. So it's, it's a suburb of Philadelphia. And I, don't know, I was very fortunate. I had an older brother who was very into science and tech and my dad was an engineer and so kind of grew up around technology i remember 
like learning how to program on a graphing calculator and getting all the new computer. When the internet first came out, I was like researching like even like stock tips and it's like, oh, you can like the thing that you watch on TV, you can actually find anytime you want online. So, so I was kind of like curious and excited about technology. And then MIT just seemed like one of the best places in the world to, to both like nurture that, develop that, but then also I think again, experience Boston as a city. Cambridge is is a great place. Your college years just being surrounded by so many different institutions and people. So, I spent a few years there myself in E fifty three mainly. Oh, yeah. Was that a fairly intense major for you, or did you find it? Did it come easy to you? What What was most memorable about that time? One of the biggest things that I took away from the experience is just the power of being able to build things. Like it's, it's one of the professions where you can just, especially programming, like if you have an idea for something, you can just sit down and do it almost. You can just learn very quickly. And, and I think in their environment in particular, they very much wanted to like train people as practitioners, as people who can actually like understand the low level workings of the fundamentals of like why things are work the way they work and how they're created just because then as we go on and like innovate and like build new things and different things, we can sort of like have those fundamentals and and take it from there. And so, so it was certainly intense, but I, I think it was a culture that really taught you both the work ethic, but then also just how to, or another thing that was really valued being there is just being around so many like-minded people who were really like just fascinated by technology. And I think apart from the classes and the lab work, just being able to like have conversations serendipitously with, with people who were like experts in their field and learn from them was just such a unique experience. And so, so yeah, so they really encouraged you to think about how you could really like do anything and then like things are in your control and you could really drive the direction of, the projects you create, but then also just like fields more generally. There's something to me about places like that where you don't have the sort of anti-intellectual current that makes it embarrassing to be really interested in learning things. Generally, you, you have a lot of people around who are willing to admit that they are. Yeah. And whether you use the term geeks or nerds or or what I like to call them, just like curious people. There's the, definitely that like love of experimentation and exploring and like crazy ideas are valued. Those are the ones that are like fun to talk about and debate about. And so, yeah, it's really an environment unlike any others. And I really appreciate my time there. I did a degree in computer science at Yale 20 years before you. And I'm sure that a million things, almost everything changed in what you study. But what I found was that I learned a whole lot more than you needed in the job world, but that I was happy that I did. That's definitely true. I mean, if I like fast forward even just like four or five years after MIT, I was I was working at Cora and I was doing I remember I was an engineering manager and to there, like more than half the job was not at all like coding. I was not sitting in front of a laptop, banging out code. I was more of just like working with people and learning how to manage people and communicate and hire and grow teams and figuring out 
how product strategy and growth and all these things that there's no concrete class for in college. But I, th- I think that breadth that you get in college is still important because I think it, in some ways you're learning the skills of how to think more broadly about solutions and the same sort of like logical thinking, problem solving process and the same approaches, whether they're in a completely different field, you could still apply them in your day-to-day job. And so, so yeah, so in some respects, I, I also had that thought of just like, oh yeah, 90% of the classes I took, I'm not using any of this anymore, probably or even more, but, but it's just like the way of thinking and approaching problems and the way of working with other people and just the values of like, yeah, it's good to be curious. It's good to question your assumptions and drill things down to fundamentals first before so you can actually understand what's going on. I think that still serves me well. So did you go back to get a master's because you were a glutton for punishment or were you working on something you wanted to continue? What led you to, to stay there longer? Part of it was like I almost didn't want to leave because I, I just love the environment so much. And so so the opportunity to like get, get back to it. And then part of it is like I think I was very curious about the problem I was working on. At, at the time I was on the web, there's so much information that's actually very similar. There are lots of news articles that'll be written about the same thing or lots of even just draft versions of documents. So at the time, it was actually an interesting problem in, in web search is just a high percentage of the internet is just duplicate material. So how do you detect that and then filter that out, wade through it, make better sense of it? So I thought it'd be great to just explore it more, work in a little more. But then I think eventually got to the point where I wasn't so, so curious that uh, I didn't want to go the PhD route. And so I ended up going to Google as a software engineer, primarily with them as a great company, just being able to do a lot of software engineering work that was also impacting the world and people. So you go there for the food? <laughs> they certainly had great food and great gyms and a great environment there. In, in odd ways, it actually felt very similar to MIT. And I, I know that this was partially intentional on their point where I think people would joke all the time how it was almost a second college campus for people, but they sort of picked up on that ethos of the value of having, or like what's great about university campuses and trying to replicate that in a work campus where you have people who are like-minded and push to explore and innovate and work together and question assumptions and and do so in an environment where you have a certain amount of freedom to spend the time working on various things. In less than a year, you went to Quora. Tell me about that transition. What attracted you there? What, what stage was Quora in? And what was your many-year Quora experience like generally? You're right. It was only at Google a short time before, before I found Quora and decided to make the jump. At the time, they were a small startup I was the seventh person, I believe, to join, and they had released a beta product out in the world. So it was already being used by a couple thousand people. The first thing was really just the opportunity to work with a really talented, small group of like passionate, intense, incredibly intelligent people. Adam D'Angelo, Charlie Cheever, the two founders, they're two of the smartest people I've ever met. And I think they also came from a software engineering background. And and so I think the opportunity to join a startup that early on, to me, was appealing just to be able to have a lot of just like impact across the board. Like at a company like Google, 
there's so many people, so many teams, so many projects where a lot of people are doing important work, but that work tends to be often more focused on one niche area of one larger project. And you're sort of part of inherently part of a, a, a team that's, that's huge, but, but joining a startup with four engineers, less than 10 people, the, the work there is, it's just very like fast paced and exciting and it changes every day. And so I remember like one week I was working on setting up our caching services and the next week it was a load balancer and the next week it was upgrading our databases and the next week it was product changes. And for an engineer, especially early in the career to be able to have the ability to like work and learn with really smart people and just get exposure to a huge range of different things was definitely really appealing. And, and that's, that's how it worked out. Like, I think I, I learned more in my first few months at Quora than, than my whole time at Google. Uh, I still love Google as a company, but it was, it's still like, I think when you're, you're in it and you're doing it as at a startup and, and being forced to like learn things that you probably have never seen before and just get exposed to so many things quickly. It's um, it's a different environment. I'm only knowledgeable at all about Quora as a user, having, you know, looked up things on it, or I think rarely, if ever commented or answered, but I know the platform. What was it like as a business? Was it growing fast? Was it funded? Was it exciting? Yeah. So it was certainly growing fast as a platform. So the company was uh, funded by venture capitalists. So at the time I joined, they had raised a series A. Um, so a small amount of money to kind of like continue to grow the team and and build out the product. We were very fortunate to have investors who were definitely in it for the long term and and saw the value of of growing the platform and and knew that a lot of its impact would be derived from building up as much of a knowledge base as we could and a user base as we could. And so so most of the first four, five, six years I was there it was entirely focused on product growth. And so at the time was not making any revenue from the product and and everything was just about building a high quality product and growing in usage and growing the content. And then had confidence that this would be a like sustainable business. And and so at a certain point towards the end of my time there, uh, we started running ads in the product. And, and so that's the main revenue stream right now where there's contextual ads that are on the platform itself so that as people are like searching for a question and reading through answers, they're also reading through ads that different companies could could place that, that are often both relevant to the question at hand. So so often kind of similar to Google search ads, they're they're often actually good for the user to be able to see this other content or answers. Especially if people come back to Core over time, as as a person, Core is able to learn about you as a per, like personalize things based on your interests and what you're interested in reading and what you know about. And so so ads contextually targeted both to you as a person and to the content you're looking at are are where a lot of the revenue comes in now. Did you have ownership, like options or other, like ownership of the company? All employees have a certain amount of equity in the company, and that's part of their standard compensation package. So when they join from day one, they they start vesting, vesting stock. And so it's standard for most Silicon Valley type companies. And that's primarily because we certainly wanted employees to be invested in and rewarded for the success of the company itself. And so knowing that everyone is there 
not just for the salary that they're getting every day, but also for because they do have some equity and they do want to see like the company succeed long term. Do you think of it as Quora is like yours in some to some extent? Yeah, I think certainly for me personally, just how meaningful it was or how much time I spent there and uh, how meaningful it was to work there and all of the great relationships I, I made with uh, my coworkers there. I do feel like I was able to have a lot of positive impact on just what the product was able to do and what, what it's become and how it's grown. And me and all the other employees like felt a certain amount of pride in, in then the impact that that has on, on the world. People often ask me why I stayed there so long. Like it's, it's actually maybe in Silicon Valley tech company terms, kind of an odd thing to see someone staying at a startup, especially for over eight years, just because companies certainly change and evolve and are very different when they're 10 people to 100 people to a couple hundred people. To me, it felt like both the ownership and ability to drive change that was given within the organization and on the product, and then also seeing the impact that it had out in the world. When I think about Cora, I think about the like millions and millions of people who come to it every day and then are hopefully seeing and reading things that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. It's generating so much new knowledge in the world. Thinking about that mission as like, we're actually helping the world here because we're, we're able to like generate all this new knowledge for people and give them access to it. I certainly took a lot of pride in that and that's what kept me there for a long time. And so why did you then leave? Part of it was it had had actually been a long time. And so I felt like I felt like I'd kind of worked in nearly every every possible thing I could have at the company. And so it was a good time to sort of like transition the reins over to other folks and kind of think about what might be next in, in my career or if there are different places and that I could have impact and and learn about. Had you been a political person going back to your youth? Did you follow politics closely? Did you have a rooting interest? What were you like politically? So not as much growing up. I think back to that a lot because because there is so much of politics that like affected my day-to-day life. And I think for whatever reason, maybe because like science and technology and math and all these things were sort of like also my like passions and interests and I spent so much time in that, it didn't really as much come up top of mind. So today, actually, what I owe a lot of it to is my sister. So I actually have a twin sister, and she's also one of the smartest people I know in like math and science growing up, but she kind of chose a different path going down into like government and language and law. She, she got a law degree. And so, so she, her whole career has been in politics. And so while I was out in the Bay Area working at Google and Cora, she was always like in my ear talking about the interesting things and that she was working on in the political space. And, and so that's like slowly over time, I, I like picked it up from her. And then obviously I'd say like 2016 was a huge turning point for me. That's the point where it almost became very, very real, uh, both the like consequences of not being involved or not doing enough and the like potential for really helping. So I would definitely say like 2016 was a transition point and maybe the like culmination of years though of, of sort of like slowly learning about and hearing about, about politics. 
how did you get pulled into the Buttigieg primary campaign? I knew a fair number of people there. A bunch of them been on the podcast and some haven't. Uh, I knew Jess O'Connell and Sonal Shah and I've interviewed Greta Carnes and Nina Smith, but it seemed like it had a very strong team. Yeah. I, I say this to so many people. I feel like I was incredibly lucky that the B campaign was my first experience in politics, just how many great people were there. It was kind of, to some degree, serendipitous. So I guess I was mentioning in early 2019, I, um, I wasn't working. And so I was kind of like in that phase trying to figure out what to do next. And so I was talking with various companies in the Bay Area and thinking about maybe starting my own company, things like that. And then right around then is when a lot of the primary campaigns started getting going. So I was lucky I was able to see Pete, hear him talk, got very excited about him as a candidate and then actually just started volunteering for him in the Bay Area. Met people on through Twitter and Facebook who also supported him in San Francisco. Started chatting, helped them build a local website. We put together a group of people to like march in the Pride Parade for Pete. Have like small events where we'd like talk to our friends or call people or think about different um, like go through like speeches that he's written. And so it, it was like a very much organic hey, we really like this guy. Maybe there's other people in the Bay Area that also could support him or should know about him because at that time, obviously, he was like a very lesser-known candidate. And and so it was, it was odd. In the process of trying out what figure out what I wanted to do in my career, I realized I was actually just spending all my time volunteering for this guy that I was really excited about. Through that, I got in touch with folks on the team there. And then over the summer, was they were at the point where they were ready to start hiring engineers. And there are a few people there who were already on the data team who had been working on things. And uh, and yeah, by mid to late summer, things seemed to be going well that um, that they were ready to like expand the team. And so I thought since I like was really excited about the guy and this was, even though it was something that was completely new, I was also lucky to be in a position where like, yeah, I can fly out and just come to South Bend and hang out there for a few months. So I moved out to South Bend, started helping them on some engineering stuff, and kind of it grew from there. Very few people have come into the technical operation of a insurgent Democratic campaign that's you know on its way to taking off. Can you describe what the feeling inside the campaign was like and what was that experience so maybe a couple different dimension this i could talk about so one was that it was it was amazing to see and very very apparent on day one that everyone who was there really loved pete like they were there because of the candidate and because of like what they saw in him and his vision and his future and with so many people in the race, so many different candidates, it was, I would, I would say, maybe like competitive in terms of like where different staff were going. And it felt like if you were someone who was, one, like willing to move out to South Bend, Indiana, uh, and then two, potentially who had opportunities with other candidates, I think if you came to Pete, it was it was very clear it was because there was something about his his ethos and his intelligence and him as a person and candidate and envision that you really believed in. And so, so I think that was something that 
I got a feel for immediately. The second thing I'd say is that given how non-traditional of a candidate he was, there was no way that the campaign could just run normal operation and expect to do well. Like there's so many other great candidates in the field, so many other well-known, well-funded candidates in the field that if the campaign were to just follow the same playbook as, as every other past presidential primary, that would not have been successful. And so I think what that allowed us to do, especially in the summer around when I was joining, is just be a lot more creative in terms of different programs that were being run or spun up or thinking about how to do investments or thinking about the tech we brought to it as well. One of the first projects I worked on was thinking about our organizing program and working very closely with Greta Carnes, who you mentioned. And the P campaign wanted, really wanted to push relational organizing because they felt that this was something that could actually get people excited about P and build up a lot of support. Like when I know when I talk to my friends and family and when people, there was one of the most effective ways to like spread awareness of this person who, who most people in the political scene just like didn't know. And so, so thinking about how tech could then support the relational program that the organizing team wanted to run both in the early states in Iowa and New Hampshire, but then also like more nationally as support for him built. So taking that as an example, how well did the relational organizing program work there and what technology did support it? So we ended up building our own website for it. I think we had evaluated some of the other tools that were out there at the time. I think before I had gotten there, they'd already been going down the path of building out our own thing for the campaign. We knew that the program that needed to be run was probably going to be fairly unique for being able to like get the message out. So yeah, so we ended up building our own site. Uh, the site was definitely like useful and used by by thousands of people in in the early states. It was really the program itself that drove the success of it and not the technology. So it was baked into how our organizers would actually um, talk to their volunteers, how they would train them on the ground, how they would hold house meetings in Iowa and then encourage other people to hold further house meetings, how they would encourage people to like keep going back to their friends and family and talking with them in like conversations over time and not just once uh, leading all the way up to the caucus itself. And so it worked really well as a, because it was sort of like baked in from the beginning as the program. And maybe why I'm being a little vague about it is, is I think there are core challenges with the program in that a lot of it is actually difficult to measure. Like this is maybe different than traditional voter outreach tactics where like when you, when you have situations where you have volunteers just like texting and calling people, it's very easy to measure. Like you get clear metrics over attempts and contact rates and IDs from that. But when you're talking more about like people calling and talking with their mom or just chatting with a friend over coffee or it coming up as you're going to a movie or something like where that is still an effective conversation. That's still an effective push for Pete, but but we're never going to be able to like capture that in the data completely itself. And so as like relational evolves to become hopefully an important part of like many camps in the future, I think that'll be always one tension is just 
there's some amount that is going to be visible and seen in metrics itself and some amount that you're just not going to be able to capture, but there's still some amount of trust needs to be placed in that. Those conversations are happening and then those are actually affecting change. I've been watching the primary process pretty closely since the seventies, probably. And every time it's this interesting combination of the advantages that a front runner has and the advantages that a that a insurgent campaign has with a exciting candidate that takes off the 2020 race had multiple people who really could have won it and came close to at different points and then the twists and the turns to get to Biden what did you think as somewhat of a a new person at the details of the way the process works with early states and primaries and caucuses and everything about how we pick a candidate in the party. This is my like first presidential cycle, my first time going through the primary. I think it's very good that we have some set of voters who can really see and experience candidates up close, which is what we get in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina this year. We can sort of like debate who those voters should be and whether those voters actually like represent the country and are diverse. And the fact that the process requires candidates to go and like speak in gymnasiums and classrooms and town fairs and maybe, maybe not do the gimmicky stuff, but like actually like have real conversations with people and be put on the spot and be held to talk about like their views that to me was actually a little refreshing. Like I, I took several trips out to Iowa. There's some people who like go, especially as I got close to the caucuses, went to like three or four events a week and like had heard actually a majority of the candidate, the field live. And I think that level of retail politics is actually very helpful in getting a good look at, at these candidates. So someone like Pete, and that is actually where like someone like him really shines where, cause it, as soon as I think as, as, as a lot of people get to like hear him and see him, they tend to like him and, and tend to support him more. And, and so like if the process were different where it didn't afford an opportunity for newcomers like him to actually get exposure or to have the space, I think it, it just like limits as a party who were able to bring forth those candidates. And that said, there are all these certainly like problems with the way that like the process might feel very exclusionary to a wide swath of voters because of how much is emphasis is placed on this early states and how much might be decided right after Super Tuesday when a lot of the country has yet to vote. And so, so there's definitely pros and cons, but I, I think if there was some way to like maintain as part of the process where these candidates actually have to like face real people and and be judged at a very sort of like local level. And I think that's one thing that is is great about what we have. Well, it's interesting because sometimes real people make really good decisions and see through people and make great choices. And other times real people pick Donald Trump. I think one of the good things about it is that usually you have a long enough look to weed out the charlatans. And I think you're right about about Pete is is that he was so 
apparently intelligent and his communication skills are so good that he could stand out even as a, a mayor of a not gigantic city and get a, a really good swing at it. One of the things that, that I found perplexing was, you know, my reactions to him were pretty uniformly positive. I liked what he said and how he said it. But there were some people I know who responded very negatively to him and thought he was glib or picked up things that in the negative campaigning against him. Did that surprise you? Yes or no. Part of it, I assume, is just natural, just in terms of any campaign or any race. So it wasn't too surprising to see when like certain stories came out, again, me being new to politics, but still assuming like, that was kind of par for the course. I've learned so much and give so much credit to like Liz Smith and the whole communications team and, and what they will do. Because like having someone like Pete be able to raise as much prominence or grow, a, a lot of that was owed to their ability to just have him in front of so many people. To a large degree, it felt like when Pete said something, you had trust that he really meant it or he really believed it or this, this is how he actually thought about a problem. Like he was so intelligent. He was so thoughtful. He was so well-read. He was so empathetic. He like famously would just be open to like anyone asking him questions about anything. Like in Iowa, he had these bus tours. The press was with him almost 24-7. And, and part of that was because he really had like nothing to hide, one. And then also he like really wanted to let people in on like who he was as a person and what he thought. And it's, it's always going to be true that not everyone agrees 100% with people. And, and that's fine. And so I think Pete took certain views on the campaign and, and it was because he thought those were the best views. And obviously some people really liked him and like that. And then others were going to disagree and didn't like that. Tell me about the path from Pete for America to Biden for president. Yeah. So after the Pete campaign wound down, uh, so this was in, in March of, of 2020, this was also, as you know, right around the time when the pandemic was really picking up across the country. At a certain point, um, made the decision to leave Indiana and go back to my, um, my home in San Francisco. And so basically drove across the country as fast as I could just to kind of um, try to stay safe with the pandemic. I had such a great experience that I knew I wanted to stay in the political space, do something. But with COVID happening at the time, actually, I got in touch with a few friends who had started another organization called U.S. Digital Response. And they were a group of technologists, and they were really, some had done some government work before, some had done private tech work, but really were noticing all the challenges that were happening because of the pandemic with local governments, just like cities and county offices who were trying to shift a lot of their processes from offline to online. And so they were rallying a group of volunteers to go help with that. So I ended up working with them for a couple months, uh, just working on these different, again, teams of volunteers, technology folks who would virtually sit with different government agencies and places and kind of just hear what they're going through with with COVID and the challenges they have and, and see where we could have helped. And so, so it was kind of doing that for a few months as the rest of the primary was continuing. And, and so then eventually it became that Biden was going to be the nominee. 
around the summer is I think when they got to the point where they were then in earnest really starting to hire up for for the general. And so through um, people I met on the Peak campaign, I got in touch with with folks on the Biden team and then eventually got connected with uh, with Becca, who led the analytics team uh, and talked with her about um, potentially joining and working with a lot of the engineering and inf- data infrastructure that the analytics team was doing. And so, so yeah, I was very fortunate to make that connection and then decided this was a great opportunity to, again, work with great people and, and obviously try to help Biden be elected. So, so I ended up joining. And your job was analytics engineering director, the technology infrastructure for analytics, right? Yeah. So a lot of what our part of the team did was basically maintain all of the data infrastructure on the campaign. So do everything we could to support the the team of like analysts and data scientists that we had, um, all of whom were closely like partnering with different people across the, the whole campaign and the whole organization. So we basically wanted to make sure that the campaign was leveraging data as best as it could in terms of like decisions it was making and strategy and everything. And so, so for the analytics engineering team, a lot of the work fell to how do we best, one, just like ingest all this data that we're able to just from all these different sources and vendors who are using and different programs that were happening, bring it together in a sort of like central cohesive aggregated way in our data warehouses. What was that infrastructure? Did it change a lot after you got there? Did you have to create it? Was it already in place? I joined in July of 2020. So at that time, the campaign already had uh, a bunch of infrastructure in place. And and that was due to the the great work of really a a small and mighty team in the primary. Uh, There's only a couple of data engineers through the primary who built up a lot of the initial infrastructure. And then, so like Michael Brewster, Tony Smolensky, they did a great job of even just the two of them kind of setting things up initially. When Biden became the nominee, uh, that also opened up a lot of help and support from the DNC tech team. And then they also started hiring me and other folks. So we used Phoenix, which is the kind of data warehousing system built by the DNC, which is built on top of Google BigQuery. So that had a lot of one just like historical data that was provided from the from the DNC, which is like extremely helpful with a lot of the analytics and modeling. And so sort of like data science and part of our world lived in BigQuery. A lot of that managed with partnering very closely with the DNC tech team. And then the other part of our world lived in AWS Redshift using Civis platform on top of that. So Civis is a, a platform of vendor that I think nearly all of the presidential primaries used, uh, including the Biden team, and then continued to use in the general. And so that was really the the main place where a lot of the data was uh, was centralized. And then a lot of the analysts working on teams would be able to use this platform to interact with that data and build pipelines. And so, so I'd say that the core infrastructure of those were like already in place. And, and a lot of the work for around when I joined and as the team's expanding was just making that scale and adapting it as the whole campaign and the team were growing. So we eventually got to a point where we had 
over 100, 150 analysts using these systems. And so making sure that everything around onboarding and access and security and just day-to-day operations and processes smooth through that scaling in a very short amount of time was a lot of work. But then also as the campaign evolved to do more new programs, like as organizing really picked up and voter contact picked up and a lot of state teams were built out, it felt like we were almost adding a new vendor every week in terms of just like tools that we were using and data that needed to come in. So there was a lot of work in just building out new pipelines and better understanding how to make new data that we were collecting fit in with existing models that we had. You mentioned Becca, the analytics director. How closely did you work with her and that team? And to what extent do you now understand what happens with analytics in a presidential campaign? Can you explain what happens? The way the analytics team was structured, and give me all credit to, to Becca Siegel, who's there, and, and Molly, her deputy, and, and the folks who were there in the primary, they basically created different pods, we call them, that would interface and work closely with different functions around the campaign. So we had a pod for fundraising and they'd work very closely partnering w- with folks around the campaign who were working on fundraising, same with paid media, same with our state's program, uh, working closely with the different state data directors and teams across across the country. So for engineering, the m- model we used was we wanted to be as close to the analysts as possible and really understand the work that they were trying to do and really try to build and adapt the infrastructure so that it could like best solve the problems that are like analysts were seeing every day. So we had a structure where we actually had engineers that were embedded in with these pods of analysts. And so who felt like the team felt like part of the team every day. For example, we had an engineer, Emily, who was embedded in with the paid media analytics. And so she would sit day to day and like, as the paid media analysts would be working with our paid media director and program and figuring out things like where to place ad buys and how to better understand which voters we were reaching. Engineering would be helping the analysts actually like build tools or improve their SQL or, or like doing anything where trying to like make the technical side of whether it's analysis or cutting list of voters or, or any other function that the analysts are trying to do to make that easier. Analytics is structured to really integrate and help programs around the campaign as those programs are trying to better understand like what should we do and is it effective and also like what has happened, like reporting after things are happening. And then I view analytics engineering or data engineering as how can we then best create the environment and create the tools that those analysts are best equipped to to do what they're special at, which is being able to pull out a lot of understanding from the data itself and and contribute to like strategy and decision making. A lot of the analytics is about resource allocation and the 2016 campaign after the very, very close loss, the analytics people there got a lot of blame fairly or unfairly for where resources were not allocated to the really close states that were lost across the the North. The 2020 campaign turned out to be one 
very, very narrowly across five close states also. Did you have a feeling in the middle of this that the fate of the country could turn on what you guys were up to? So working on the team with Becca and, and like Meg, who led our data science team, I, I was like, one, always impressed at how thoughtful they were. And, and or in particular, like, I think the campaign took like nothing for granted. My impression from maybe like what the was going on in the media and the public and what I'm hearing from friends is like, oh, it's clear Biden's going to win. I, I don't think that ethos made its way to the analytics team in the sense of like, I think we were always almost like paranoid about what are like different things that could happen. And and I think Becca has spoken about this a few times in, in Gen 2 is like always thinking about what were the different paths to victory and trying to create a situation where there would be like multiple. And, and so it's like not putting all eggs in one basket. And so I think that was something that served the team and the campaign very well when Becca and Meg would talk about how how there's actually like different strategies that could be taken here. How can we kind of have redundancy in our ways to win in the electoral college? Right. And and a lot of that was also rooted from uncertainty. And, and that, like, that's something that that's, that's a message that I really took away from working on this campaign. I wasn't part of the 2016 campaign, but my sense is one big learning from that is just how much uncertainty there really was in all of the data that we were pulling in and whether it's polling or whether it's the models that we were creating. And so a lot of times it's like being able to explain that uncertainty and getting other people comfortable with that uncertainty and realizing how, like, yes, we still need to make a decision about something, but how can we make those decisions resilient to this uncertainty and always thinking about like, what could be going wrong? Like, what if this polling is wrong in a certain way? Or what if like this happens that affects this turnout over here? Like being more comfortable with saying that, hey, from the analytics perspective, we can't tell you exactly to the like very fine grain this is going to happen because there's inherent uncertainty in in how we're actually creating this. I think that was something that was very appreciated and again was very much how Becca and the team approached it. I think that was yeah, just important in making sure that the campaign leadership was uh, effectively equipped in making the decisions they needed to make. A lot of the coverage of the campaign is driven by that polling, the public polling. Uh, campaign does its own polling, which isn't usually released. Were you folks surprised at the difference between public polling and things you'd see in 538 or other websites and what you knew internally or what actually transpired? To be honest, I'm probably not the best person to speak to that. So I'm not sure. Part of it is I, I certainly don't want to put words in the mouth of of Becca and Meg and, and the folks who are really much more closer to it. Maybe the one thing I will say just as being part of the team and working on the campaign is that like we always operated as if we were losing or I, I, I certainly with my team tried to have the mindset of we have to like keep pushing and keep fighting for every vote as the expression goes. Like we still operated the team as if we were down every day. And I think that was important just to keep sprinting through the finish line. To some degree, we were a little bit 
insulated from what was happening externally or to the public. Yeah, it makes sense. Fortunately, you guys won it, won it broadly in the popular vote and with plenty of room to spare in the electoral college, even though a lot of states were close. What have you been doing since inauguration and what's your plans going forward? Definitely excited and relieved that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won. Like the last couple of weeks, just watching the daily press conferences and the news briefing and seeing the executive orders and like thinking about how many thousands of people worked to make all of this happen. And for me, just playing a very, 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 very small part of it. I'm not sure it like hit me until after inauguration happened and like seeing all the effects of of what it now means to have him as president and government taking the form that it is right now. So so definitely thankful for all the like work that so many people did to make that happen. For me personally, I'm mostly thinking about what's next still. I definitely want to stay in the politics progressive tech space. I think there's so much work to do. There was so much energy the last couple of years. I know some of that was driven by by Trump and, and the direction the country was going. But I think even even though we won, there's still there's still so much that needs to happen. There's a lot of local races this year. There's um, thinking about the House in 22 and and obviously the next presidential in 24. I think for me, interested in seeing how all of this energy that we brought forth in the last year or two could then now not only be harnessed towards elections, but also other like progressive causes, whether that's climate or social justice or uh, reproductive rights or a whole host of things where it's important to just continue the momentum. So, so yeah, so for me, I'm trying to figure out where I could best slot in and, and work with a great team and have impact and, and hopefully convince more people to join me. Like that's one thing where, as someone who came from maybe the private tech space, I was so encouraged and, and thankful. There was so many of like friends and other people in my network in the last year who just kind of raised their hand and were just like, how can I help? Or I want to get involved. And and to them, I think it was their first exposure to campaigns and to politics. And so I, I think the more people we could bring into the space, the more talent we can like retain in the space, the the better equipped we'll be for for like all this stuff going forward. So, so that's another thing I've been thinking about is just how to not let the momentum die post election and and just create opportunities and awareness and and even just figure out how do we um, yeah just continue these movements even even with Biden as president even in an off year for for federal elections and. Well, I'm glad you're considering that and, and thinking about staying in the space. I think you're right that, uh, well, talent is a huge, it's a hugely important thing. You had talked about maybe starting a company previously. Do you see any gap that intrigues you as far as, hey, maybe I can find my own thing in political tech? Or are you more looking at joining a, an existing vendor or party committee or other other organ of the progressive ecosystem? Yeah. So I, th- I think all of the above. And, and, and so we'll, we'll sort of like see, see where things go. Uh, I think there are certainly a lot of gaps, which could either be filled by like people starting something new or, or just the existing vendors and organizations. 
shifting things. So one I'll mention, which I think has been part of a lot of conversations after the election, is that we're actually at a point where we have a lot of tools, a lot of vendors, a lot of sources for data in the space and just having better ways for it to be able to talk with each other and interoperate and flow. Like a lot of what we ended up building on the Biden campaign were just pipelines to be able to like pull in data from this one place, um, kind of clean it up into a nicely centralized form and then like push it out into this other place. And so, so to some degree, I think we maybe need like less new tools and more ways to think about how do those tools talk with each other and integrate and are there common data models that we could then more easily build on top of. And that's one thing I've been thinking about. The second is, I think there's a huge disparity between large, well-funded campaigns and the long tail of, of dev down ballot races that, that really need to be, I think, better supported. And we had a huge analytics team on the Biden campaign and a huge tech team. But if, if you're thinking about the average house race or or even going deeper down to like state ledge or mayors or, or places where I think they're certainly more starved resources and maybe they don't have uh, any data staff or tech staff and they're mostly using tools as is and or using consultants and vendors. And so thinking about how do we best support those races, that's one thing I've learned that's really important for sustaining and continuing this momentum is just spreading democratic wins in elections, pushing them down as far to the local level as we can, building a large bench of really great leaders for the future of the party. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? I mentioned something around like bringing in and being able to retain a lot of tech talent. The more that we're able to bring in people from who've worked at other private tech companies in the other, other spaces, whether it's consumer or internet or, or elsewhere, I think that could really just foster a lot more innovation and just like different ideas in the space that could be helpful. I think thinking about really how to retain and build really diverse teams in the space is like critically important. I don't think like Silicon Valley does it well or right in, in, in respects. And, and so it's, it's, I know it's a challenge everywhere, but I think that's something where we need to be thinking about how do we retain more women grow more women in the space, uh, other minorities. I've been thinking about that a lot. I see that as being a, like a multiplier on top of all the different efforts that we're doing. So, If you were talking to a, a tech guy or gal uh, who's in college or early in their career and who got an interest in coming into progressive political technology, what would you advise them? I think a couple of things I'd say. So one is that as much as possible, if you can find an organization that you, where you care about their mission, where you care about the work that they're doing, that you like generally inherently want to see them succeed and grow and expand, follow that path. And if anything, that that might be more important than the details of the role itself or the details of like what you might be doing technically, because I think finding a good home organizationally helps to just make the work more meaningful and you'll find that you'll put in the extra time, put in the extra effort to, to really want to see that succeed. The other thing I'd recommend is, is as, as much as possible, try to 
really get close to other folks in these organizations who are like running programs or or doing the outreach to the extent that you're able to build up as much context as possible on and get closer to the non-technical work. Uh, I think that really would improve and strengthen than the technical work itself because you get just closer to understanding the barriers that those folks are facing when they're trying to like do things and push things out. But then it also really aligns the technology and makes sure that any of the the things that we're building are end up being actually like useful and helpful. Yes, certainly develop your technical skills and grow and develop from a like actual data practitioner or software engineer, but then also try to get close and experience and exposure to all the non-technical aspects of what an organ is doing. And that'll, that'll really like serve you well as you grow. And well, I think that's, that's pretty good advice. Is there anything else you want to say, Shreyas? The work is not done, even though we were able to defeat Trump, even though we had a lot of great wins, there's, there's a lot more work to do. And so I am, uh, I hope people continue to keep investing in the space and continue to support organizations that are doing great work. Well, I'm glad you did what you did and I hope to see what you do in the future. So thanks for taking the time today. That was Shreyas Seishasai. Shreyas is at, at Shreyas on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.